Welcome, 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 Housers, to another episode of On the Way Home. I am your host, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. We have an awesome, awesome pod today uh, with a guest that I was uh, I was waiting with anticipation to interview and chat with. Uh, just amazing person in the world of housing policy and policy in general uh, at the federal level. But before we get to that, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about Blue Door, my organization that. Uh, is in York Region, Peel Region, and Durham Region, doing great work with vulnerable people, uh, helping them with housing, helping them with health supports, and helping them find meaningful employment that lifts them out of poverty and prevents them from experiencing homelessness. If you want to check out the great work that that team of over 100 people are doing, those 100 heroes, go to bluedoor.ca. We do this podcast in partnership with our friends at the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. They are doing incredible advocacy work across the country and much, much more. Uh, in fact, they were a large part of the National Housing Accord uh, plan put forward to the federal government to help us out of our current housing crisis. Uh, you can check that out, that work, and much, much more if you want to become a Built for Zero community, if you want to get more involved in advocacy work, uh, if you want to go to the big conference that is happening in Halifax this November, go to their website at caeh.ca and check out all the amazing work that they're doing. Let's get to today's guest. Uh, listen, I've been wanting for a long time to have Tyler Meredith on the show, just a, a brilliant, brilliant person who spent seven and a half years in government, uh, was a... Uh, He's a public policy entrepreneur and past head of economic and fiscal policy for the prime minister, for Prime Minister uh, Trudeau, uh, as well as for the Minister of Finance, uh, Christia Freeland and Bill uh, Morneau. So deeply embedded, seven and a half years, big things happening during that time, all sorts of real uh, big policy changes. And, and he was part of the National Housing Strategy and helped put together the platforms for 2019 and uh, 2021 uh, for the Liberals, um, and which ultimately they were successful uh, in winning those elections and has really done some great work um, talking about a solution or you know, a pretty great solution um, around housing affordability and building more affordable housing. Um, he put together a paper with Alan Broadbent from Maytree. He's a fellow now at Maytree. He's left government. So he's a fellow at Maytree. He's a fellow with uh, uh, Monk Toronto uh, U of T, Monk School of Policy as well, teaching there and also doing his own consultancy work for MP Policy. Um, so doing all sorts of great work still. Uh, and we chat with him around uh, you know, what has to happen moving forward. We chat with him about that solution that can actually, uh, and how it works, how it can act as an investment for government at the same time getting the outcomes they need around creating more affordable housing. It really is a brilliant, and it, in my brain, a, uh, you know, a, a no-brainer to actually do moving forward. So it's a great idea. It can happen quickly. And in fact, we've done it before, uh, as Tyler will talk about, uh, many, many years uh, post-World War II, what we did and what we've done and other areas where governments made investments that uh, are positive for the balance sheet and get outcomes moving forward. So we talk about that. We talk about his hopes for the future, uh, how we got into this mess, how we're going to get out of this mess. Um, just for clarity, he did not call it a mess. Those are my terms. But how we got into this challenge and how we're going to get out of that challenge, this challenge moving forward. That and much, much more. It's a fascinating conversation with a fascinating, brilliant guy. Uh, you don't want to miss this. Take a listen. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's go to it now. 
So we ask the same question to all our guests because it's very uh, personal to all of our guests uh, and, and there's no right or wrong answers. I think there's better answers, but there's no right or wrong answers. And that is, what does home mean to you? So home to me obviously means family, like a lot of people. And I associate home with those feelings of, uh, you know, my loved ones and uh, also um, where I feel kind of most at peace in, in what is, I think, for a lot of people, an increasingly chaotic world. Um, but I would also say that it's it when I think about home as it connects to some of the work that I've done in, in uh, social policy, I often think about my great aunt, uh, uh, Aunt Ruth. Uh, she was a, a, kind of like a second mom to me. Um, and she grew up in Ottawa community housing. And uh, I have never forgotten thinking about her life and her experience. And oftentimes when I think about whether it's you know, how we think about the old age security system or the guaranteed income supplement or CPP or housing, I often think about, so what would this mean and these policy changes mean in the context of Aunt Ruth's life? Because she was someone who worked um, you know, uh, 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 in, in, in retail jobs all throughout her life through the Second World War and afterwards. And she lived a very modest life. Uh, she had no savings. She lived entirely on, uh, you know, that social safety net that we built in the 60s um, and was fortunate when she retired to be able to have access to affordable housing. And I just, when I think about the things that we have to do as a society, um, that's all often a point of reference for me. That's amazing. And thank you so much for sharing that. that personal connection uh, to to affordable housing. I think uh, it just, you know, for people to understand why you do this work. Uh, we also want to understand your journey into it. I'm sure as a, a young man, as we just, you know, as we do this podcast, we're on the second day of school kicking off. Uh, and I think, you know, as people go into school and they're learning, uh, as a young man, was it your dream, you know, as a <laughs> to, to end up as a, a policy guy or, or tell us more about your journey. How the heck did you end up doing uh, what you're doing? What, what are you doing now? So, uh, so I, um, for, for your listeners reference, obviously I was in the government of Canada for uh, the latter part of about seven, seven and a half years. And I just left the government of Canada last September. Um, but my journey into the policy world, which brought me to the prime minister's office, to the department of finance, uh, to writing the 2019 and 2021 Liberal Platforms was a, a bit of a windy road. I've always uh, had an interest in politics. Uh, I had been an, an active volunteer in various campaigns as a volunteer, uh, really from the age of 12, actually, was the first campaign that I think I, I ever knocked doors for in, uh, in, in Ottawa Centre. Um, but part of my interest in politics was spawned by my parents, because they're both public servants. And so uh, even though they're not political, they're not partisan in any way, they've never been members of political parties. Um, there was always this discussion of, of politics and public policy at the dinner table. And it got me very curious at a young age uh, in news and, and the issues of the day. And, it, you know, um, uh, in the 19, 1997, we had the federal election and uh, my, uh, my civics teacher at the time encouraged us to go out and, and meet some of the candidates. And I did. And uh, I, I met my liberal candidate and got to know him a little bit and then subsequently volunteered in his office on Parliament Hill in the summer because I thought that would be a cool thing to do as a summer job. And for a 12 or 13 year old, that is a kind of a cool job to do. Um, and it just kind of started me down a path that I continued on. And I then went into uh, management consulting when I was uh, right out of university. I then worked in the think tank world at the Institute for Research and Public Policy in Montreal. And that was a real 
treat and delight. And, and in some ways, I think it was a finishing school in some ways for what I would go on to do in, in, in government when after the 2015 election, Mr. Trudeau won and uh, I had the fortune of coming up, coming back to Ottawa because um, I'm originally from Ottawa, coming back to Ottawa to, uh, to work in the prime minister's office. Um, and, you know, uh, it was in some ways uh, a long time, but a short time uh, to work in government. Um, but it was, it, it was extremely interesting because um, I, I think you can't find other opportunities in life where you can do as much good in as short a period of time as, as you can in the public service. I would say most people would say seven and a half years is a lifetime um, in that kind of work. And uh, in the sector, having worked with uh, different policy individuals throughout, and I see it is 24-7, uh, high octane, go, go, go. I mean, you're, you're really always trying to solve multiple issues uh, with you know, just a finite amount of dollars um, and with new issues popping up as you're doing that, you know, new fires to put out as you're putting out the old ones, right? So uh, incredible. And that experience, um, you know, must have just just been amazing. I, I, I can't imagine. Now, we often talk on this. We've, we've had a lot of different individuals on here, whether it's lived experts, but we've had a lot of, uh, or, or people in the sector, but we've had a lot of policy individuals on or people from government. And, and, you know, we talk about kind of how we got here. And a lot of people say it started with, and got here, I mean, housing crisis. Uh, it started with bad policy. And the only way out is going to be through better policy. Um, as someone deeply involved, uh, in creating policy over the years. Uh, what are your thoughts on how the heck did we get to where we are now? How did this happen? Because it didn't happen overnight. Well, I think the first um, culprit, and there are many culprits for how we got to this place, and I agree with you that the only way out of bad policy is through good policy. The first culprit in my mind goes all the way back to the early 1990s because if we try to chart over time what is the... Uh, ability of the housing market to be able to keep up with a growing population. And we chart that back all the way to the 1970s. And we look at the cumulative growth of uh, housing units in Canada relative to the cumulative growth of population in Canada over time. What we see is that from the 70s until the early 90s, we were more or less either creating enough units to sustain the population growth, or in some cases actually growing the housing market at a larger, faster rate than than population, which also generally helps affordability. There's a separate question on whether we've got the right kinds of affordability in different parts of the market and the right mix of housing that we need in order to deliver affordability for, for different people in different parts of the market. Um, <clears throat> but the first thing we have to do is to make sure that the market is balanced. And it, what you see is that about starting in, in the early 1990s, that trend reverses from a place of surplus to a place of deficit, and that deficit compounds over time. And one of the reasons why that changed was because the federal government, which had been a cornerstone of helping build an affordable, diverse, and mix of housing over the course of the post-war period, as we know, stepped back. It stepped back because there was a period of fiscal consolidation, and it removed a series of tax incentives to help small landlords uh, to, to, to build, but it also stopped basically investing in the development of new uh, affordable nonprofit and co-op housing. And the absence of those pieces of the market, which is in a sense kind of what keeps the market um, 
uh, truthful and what keeps the market honest in being able to deliver things that are affordable for people and to make sure that, you know, if someone is, is transitioning out of shelter, that they actually have some place to go that they can, um, that in combination with some wealth, with, with some assistance, some social assistance and some, and I hopefully uh, a job that they will actually be able to, to kind of make those three things work, but they have to have affordable housing, right? And if they don't have affordable housing, um, that's the first pillar that's going to fall in making that person's journey uh, to a more stable life um, successful. And and so uh, the absence of, of just stopping to build stuff on a go-forward basis for a period of almost 30 years until more or less uh, the national housing strategy reappeared in, in 2016, 2017, is a big part of the problem that we face in the housing market today. It's not the only problem. There are lots of other factors there, including... Um, you know, how we think about, in some cases, the financialization of housing, how we think about what's happened with um, population growth and immigration, about how we think about um, factors around, uh, you know, who owns housing and the role of foreign capital that's come into the housing market. There's a whole host of different factors. But the first and most important factor in my mind is what happened in the 1990s. And so the only way we solve that is by having the federal government come back into the game and then come back into the game in both scale and ambition necessary. And I think, um, you know, uh, I, I think uh, what the what the the 2017 national housing strategy tried to do was to at least reestablish the federal government as a presence. Does it need to do more? Does it need to to think about other tools that it can to, can exercise? Absolutely. But the first and the first condition is to make sure that we are continuing to build more and available housing stock that is affordable for people um, at every at every turn. Yeah, well said, well said, for sure. And I know right now, as we speak, uh, new minister, Sean Fraser, is crisscrossing the country, talking to people about a lot of these ideas. Uh, people have mentioned pieces around H HST on new uh, rental builds. They've uh, There's a lot of different ideas going around. There's also concern that where from the development end of things, when so they're saying new housing is amazing, but we don't, A, we don't have the people to build it, hence the need for new labor and you know, uh, immigration strategy as well. We just don't have people. It's not keeping up. And as well, people are saying for every new build uh, with a national house, you know, that could be attributed to the national housing strategy. We're losing nine to the private sector. Um, so that there has to be some kind of acquisition strategy uh, as well. So lots and lots of challenges. Uh, I think in Toronto a few weeks back, uh, they said you need a, a average um, hourly salary of $33 an hour to afford a one bedroom uh, in the GTA. Uh, and I think you're, you know, um, people who 15% of people in Ontario anyways, uh, who receive Ontario works of $700 a month or uh disability of uh, about um, $1,200 a month are, are far off from that number. So a big challenge ahead of us, but you've given us something really to think about yourself and Alan Broadman uh, from Maytree. You uh, put together uh, a piece around, it's called, I'm going to read it here because it's a longer title. It's a full-scale investment in housing on public land uh, will strengthen our public balance sheet, so good financially, and will advance the right to adequate housing for all current and future Canadians as promised in the 2019 National Housing Act. I, I was hoping that you could expand on that for our listeners. What's the idea? Uh, what are the, the, the pros to what you're suggesting? And, and how does it address some of the challenges? 
So the idea in its basic form is that the crown, be it the federal government, be it provincial governments, be it school boards, municipalities, collectively owns a lot of land in Canada. Now, not all of those lands are in the right places to be able to develop for ways that will deliver affordable housing in, in high cost markets in the country. But, but even in places like Toronto and Ottawa and Vancouver and Montreal and Calgary and Victoria, where you know, big parts of our country that, that are experiencing significant housing challenges, we do actually have a fair degree of public land. And there's a role for government in being able to develop that land. Now, often when we think about the development of land, we think of it as the government is going to sell off that land and then use the proceeds of it to invest in other things. And that can have value, but in effect, it's, it's, it's uh, misordered because what it's trying to do is to say, well, how do we maximize the value of the land as opposed to how do we maximize the utility of that land? Because when you think about the government, uh, you have the income statement and then you have the balance sheet. And the balance sheet is where all of the assets live, uh, obviously. And the income statement is where uh, you know, when we when we often talk about assessing uh, the performance of, of a government, when we think about the deficit, that's we're assessing the income statement. We're assessing whether over time the expenditure of monies is is equal to or in excess of the revenues that we're taking in. But you have when you consider that governments use a form of what's called accrual accounting, which means, in effect, um, what is the the net change that they're making to the contribution of assets versus the cash outlay that they're making in, in, in things that aren't creating assets. So if I, if I create an asset, if I spend money to create an asset, effectively it costs me nothing because I have an offsetting balance sheet transaction for that, for that expense. But if I just send money out to people in the form of grants or I, uh, I write off the value of an asset because I wanna contribute it to somebody else, for example, land, if I'm contributing land to a project, that's an expense. And so the idea is basically to say, well, why don't we reverse engineer that? So rather than having the federal government um, or provincial governments for that matter, but in this case, I'm thinking about the federal government, um, rather than have the federal government expense all of those things, which contributes to the deficit. And obviously in this moment in time in which we have high inflation and a concern by governments to not overspend to try to be seen to be contributing to inflation, um, we we have to be careful about how we about how we spend money. And so rather than than expending that money in the form of grants that we give to other people or in the form of uh, sell-offs of our land where we take a write-down on the asset if we want to contribute it to an affordable housing project, why don't we just develop the land ourselves? Because if we develop the land ourselves and we turn that into uh, units of housing, which will subsequently have cash flows associated with rent that comes from those units, then we've, we've potentially enhanced the value of that land. We've enhanced the value of the asset, and we've done it potentially in a way that could have either zero or very minimal cost. And so you, when you think about it that way, you can see very easily how there's an ability very quickly, given the scale of what government has access to in terms of land and the platform that it has to do that, to be able to, to, to bring something to scale that could construct, you know, potentially several hundred thousand units across the country. And it's, it's interesting that we haven't been thinking about this because if we go back and look at this question, 
This is very similar to what Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation was originally structured to do when it was given the mandate after the Second World War to help create veterans housing, right? So this, is, this isn't an exactly a new thing. It's actually getting government back to the way we, 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 we solved a lot of our infrastructure challenges coming out of the Second World War, how we built veterans housing, but also, frankly, how we have built other things like the St. Lawrence Seaway, how we're building the Trans Mountain Pipeline. And so the, the basic point is to say, look, if, if that was a model that worked, if that was a model that was the right model to solve big economic challenges at different moments in time in which the country needed to do those things, be it to create the, the St. Lawrence Seaway or be it to, uh, to build um, veterans housing or the Trans Mountain Pipeline, then it's a model that we should apply here and we can do it very effectively and efficiently. We should apply here because affordable housing is the urgent economic challenge that we face today. And it requires the federal government to think differently about its tools. Why, why, can I ask, why do you think they, they continue doing this? Why have they stopped? Or this is, you said, it's not a new idea. Um, you know, has there been pushback or, or are people hesitant to, to do this? Or it's just not something that has really been thought about? I think it's a combination of two things. So I think in that period of time that I described earlier, where we went from the 1990s of fiscal consolidation to the period to 2016 when the National Housing Strategy was created, the goal within government was to how to to maximize the value of how we could sell off certain assets, right? So if we saw we saw land as a surplus asset that we could monetize and sell to somebody else who would develop. And so the goal was how do we get the highest dollar so that we can sell those things off and then reinvest them into the fiscal framework to reduce taxes or invest in healthcare or whatever. And so we created things like the Canada Lands Corporation. And Canada Lands Corporation has gone around basically as a real estate broker to take the federal government's land and try to find opportunities to sell it off to developers. And its goal is literally to get the highest dollar value return on that land. And if all your goal is, is to try to maximize profit, then sure, that's probably not a bad thing to do. But if your goal is to actually develop assets for public use, that's probably not the mandate that you should want to, to adopt. And so I think part of the reason we haven't seen this idea come back very aggressively in the past number of, in the past number of decades is because there's, there's been this conflict of mandate that's existed in some parts of government um, to, to not uh, want to use lands for alternative purposes. The second reason, I think, is because having stepped out of the role of housing, having stepped out of that direct funding and development role that the federal government used to have, I think there is a cautiousness, and it's a, it's a cautiousness that I think is understandable uh, in parts of the public service to not want to overexpose the government to want to enter into those areas again. And so um, I'm, not, I'm not saying this with any particular knowledge, but I think, I think you can understand from that perspective, having had the federal government absent from this space for a while, if you were a senior official within, say, CMHC, you would be potentially a little risk averse to wanting to propose that idea as opposed to saying, well, maybe what the government can do is to give some grants to some other agencies and they can go off and solve this problem. And that's, again, that's not a bad idea. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a bad thing for the government to be investing in transfers to organizations to do those things. And, and let's be honest that if the government were even to get into this space, um, we would not want the government to do everything, right? We probably would want someone else to operate the, uh, the projects. We probably would want someone else to construct. But all we would want the federal government to do is to still hold the assets on its balance sheet. Um, but my point is that those things are not 
um, at odds with each other. But I, I think there's been a certain cautiousness that as the government has been absent, as the federal government has been absent from this, this space for so long, it's hard to, to go from a standing start to, to, to 100 miles an hour. So interesting enough, um, so where my organization, Blue Doors, up in York region, we actually did a project with Parks Canada. Parks Canada took over part of Rouge Valley uh, Park, and they had 44 vacant homes. And we approached and said, hey, we, so, so we brought in the capital and redid a home that was vacant for quite a long time uh, re, and turned it into a duplex for two families. The Parks Canada still owns. It's their asset, but it was, it's now a brand new beautiful duplex that and for the next 30 years they'll have a, a very low dollar lease with blue door so we can put two families in there at rent gear to income so it's a very small example now there's 43 more there that you know could be used or, or something could be done with a lot of land there uh, but it was it was very different for parks canada because it's not really their mandate uh around housing so they struggled a little bit with it saying you know we're kind of trails of parks people but it's an example of their, asset, their, their balance sheet, as you said, didn't change. They, they actually went up because they've got a, a better, uh, more valuable asset on that land. That's right. That's right. And, 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 and that's, that's the critical point, which is if I spend money to build an asset and the asset has an increased value equal to or greater than the amount that I've put into it, then effectively the cost of the investment is zero, right? So, and that's from an accrual perspective, which is what the federal government uses. And it's what, when we quote the deficit, you know, every, every year when the minister of finance stands up and tables the budget, and we quote all the numbers about what this year's deficit or surplus is going to be, that number is an accrual accounting number, right? That number is just simply um, a combination of monies that governments have spent to transfers to people, transfers to other governments, transfers to organizations, spending on itself, and the things that it's done to build infrastructure. And so in, in the component of that, which is infrastructure, if, we, if what we spend and we create an asset equal to or greater than the value that we've invested in it, then effectively we've offset all of the costs within the fiscal framework associated with that, with that particular spending item. Now, we will have to take a depreciation expense later on, but again, because we're building housing, we're gonna get rental income that we can use to offset the depreciation expense. And so as long as those things don't f fall too far out of line over time, you can see how you can do, a, you can take this to a pretty big scale, right? And it, a great little, a great little, just a great little aside. Um, if I were to ask you, how much do you think the Trans Mountain Pipeline cost to, 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 to buy, right? When the federal government went and bought the Trans Mountain Pipeline, how much do you think that, that cost, quote unquote, the government of Canada? Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. You know what? I'm gonna. I I, I know it was uh, billions of dollars. I I'm gonna guess. Uh, I don't know how much, but I remember there was some there was some kickback to. I can't believe you know. So so it's so there was a cash transaction of about four and a half billion dollars. Okay. Um, 
so we we cut a check effectively for about four and a half billion dollars. But in the fiscal framework, you won't find four and a half billion dollars anywhere in the budget line of the government of Canada. In fact, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, I can tell you, costs zero. It costs zero because for the four and a half billion dollars that we spent on Trans Mountain, we got an asset on our books of the same amount of money. And so my point is, you see very simply that if we can if we can leverage that in a way that governments were comfortable with years ago to solve that problem, which was we needed to get our resources to tidewater, right? Why can't we do this for affordable housing? Why can't we do this for the for what is arguably one of the most important things that one of the most important challenges that we face as a country? And we can. And that's the that's and, and what's what's simple and attractive about this idea is that it's actually it can be fiscally neutral or very close to fiscally neutral. And for governments that are looking for cheap and efficient things to do that don't blow out the fiscal framework, that solves problems that matter to people in their lives, and they can do it in big and ambitious ways. This to me is kind of, it checks all those boxes. Well, it seems to me like a no brainer. And I'll tell you at uh, a round table with Minister Fraser last week, he said exactly around the uh, fiscal restraint. He said, look, you know, we've been asked or been tasked with by finance to, you know, find out ways we can, what can we cut back in order to create the resources we need today? And so it's, it, it's saying there's not a lot of new money there. And for what, what, if I hear you correctly, you're saying you don't need new money here because of the way this is structured. Right, isn't so, and, and but it will get you the outcome that you need, which is more affordable housing, uh, which would be amazing. And I think I, I you know, was saying to you uh, before we started that uh, they were quoting what I believe to be some of the work uh, that you and Alan did. So it, it's it's falling on the right ears. Let's let's talk about those ears. Uh, we know that today you, you cannot day to day that dominated the headlines, it is housing. Uh, the prime minister got himself into a bit of a spot saying, look, it, it's not primarily, and I'm going to misquote, not primarily a federal responsibility. I know what he was meaning by that saying, you know, it's all levels of government and, and you know, there's pieces in there. But that, the, the poor guy, that headline is going to follow him, you know, and, and that's, but but so so they have this cabinet retreat and they, they brought in Tim Richter and, and uh Mike Moffitt from RealPath, and and they they you know took a bunch of ideas out, and we hope that in the months coming there'll be some things happening. Um, what do you think has to come out of that in terms of actions uh, in the next few months uh, for real change to happen? So, uh, so a couple of things. So, I think it's first important to acknowledge that the federal government is not doing nothing in this space, right? Um, and this is what I think probably is is at the heart of some of that frustration that you saw a little bit in the prime minister's comments there, which is like, the federal government actually has been doing a lot. It's been doing more than, than any of the provincial governments have on this file. Um, and it's been doing more almost in nominal terms in terms of the number of units that have been built or supported um, than any federal government has almost since that period of time in the 80s when we started to get the federal government progressively out of the out of the space of supporting affordable housing. So, um, you know, the prime minister has, and I and I say this obviously not objectively, having um, worked on the national housing strategy, uh, I think has a decent record, um, one that will stand up over time. But that doesn't that that's cold comfort to the challenge that we face today, where I think there is um, you know there is a real crisis that that exists, um, and one by the way with some structural factors that have swamped whatever scale the national housing strategy could itself put on the table. But so how do we, to your point earlier, how, how do we dig ourselves out of this place? 
And I think the way that we dig ourselves out of this place is number one, we actually probably do need some effort and whether it's a summit or, or an effort to bring people together um, at a meeting, we actually need some effort that convenes all levels of government to, to, to make sure that we're all actually rowing in the same direction. Because um, across governments, we're not necessarily doing everything that we can in the same way to solve the same problem. But we're also within each of our governments not doing all the things that we could be doing to solve the same problem, right? Like there are things just in the way that the left and the right hands work of government, um, not necessarily well coordinated on this. And a good example of that would be CMHC has recently increased mortgage insurance premiums for um, uh, for for um, uh, uh, for for multi residential developers, and it's doing that at a time in which financing conditions are. Uh, among the highest uh, because of the uh, interest rate cycle that we've gone through and at a time in which there's uh, also been great difficulty in being able to bring those projects to market. And so literally at the time in which it is least helpful to do that because of because of or triggered by just tax policy changes, uh, CMHC has come in and, and made it harder to build some of this stuff. And so you wouldn't be sitting down if you if 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 housing was your number one priority that you needed to build stuff for, and you agreed that was the single big objective that everyone should be focused on. You wouldn't sit down and say, well, maybe we should increase mortgage insurance premiums, right? And so that's just one, one small example amongst many in which across and within each of our governments, we're not all focused on the right. We're not. We're, we're. We know what the problem is, but we're not all focused on moving in the same direction. So we've got to first solve that problem and get everyone on the same page. The second thing we probably have to do is to then think about. So what is the different parts of the of the market if we were to break it down into different chunks that we need different tools to be targeted on? Right. So we need. Um, some amount of, of, of a private purpose-built rental in the mid part of the market to help those people who are either intending to transition to become first-time home buyers at a later point in time or who can, um, you know, can afford market rates, but they just, it needs to be somewhat more, a slightly more affordable market rate. And, and getting it to being a slightly more affordable market rate is about building more supply and also potentially putting some conditions on what that looks like. But then we need to make sure that governments are also focused and, and that we don't lose sight of um, the, the need to build affordable uh, uh, non-market um, solutions. And, and I think this is something that is easy to potentially get lost in some of this discussion that we've been having about uh, housing policy, because there are, you know, there are some people, and I'm an economist, and there are some, some people in my profession who look at this and just say, well, as long as we solve the supply demand imbalance, we'll, we'll make housing affordable. Well, I think we, I think as you and I know, we have decades and decades of evidence that we can have the market in equilibrium, but it's still not an affordable market for people. And it's certainly not an affordable market that delivers the diversity of solutions that they need, especially if, you know, they found themselves in a situation of homelessness and need to transition, right? And so um, we, we need a very active, muscular role for governments in in assisting either directly in building it itself or working with nonprofit providers to deliver non-market affordable housing solutions. And that's where things like what Alan and I described in our paper, as well as other as well as other initiatives like a acquisition strategy and and uh, and other things like that um, need to be built out as part of a, a very ambitious national project. And the last thing I'll say is it has to be a project that we're planning for over you know a 10 year cycle, right? Because if we simply try to come in and build hundreds of thousands of units all at once, we actually may make the current inflationary problem worse because we're going to target a whole bunch of demand on limited 
um, you know, limited number of trades workers and a limited number of materials. And so we've got to plan this out over a long horizon. We also have to do that because we've got to make sure the governments remain committed to this over a long period of time. Back to my first point, the beginning, the reason partly that we're here is because governments came and left and have come back again, right, from this space. And we've got to make sure the governments stay focused on this over the long term. Yeah, and a great example of that is if you look at countries like Finland, right, where despite changes in government, that focus on housing didn't waver or didn't waver enough to change things uh, and they would continue to make progress. But even so, uh, just recently I was seeing that uh, there's a little pushback on should that government now step away from their housing platform, which I hope they don't. But absolutely right and well said. We do have, it's interesting now, not only do we have a new federal uh, Minister of Housing in the province of Ontario, we now have another uh, Minister of Housing and Municipal Affairs. So we've had two changes there, maybe opportunity with two new people uh, and uh, with uh, others across the country to do something here. If you were uh, to be on uh, Minister Fraser's team, how, how does he hit the ground running? What, what does he do? Um, you know, he, he's well, well regarded. I know he's, he's working hard. Uh, this is a big file. How does he do it right? Well, I think the first thing he needs to do, and in fact, it's what he's already doing, is is getting out and, and meeting a lot of people, right? Because um, I, I think for, to my to my first point about, ha- about the need for convening and coordination, um, we need to be able to have kind of a, a coalition that's built across the country that that will ultimately be a multi-partisan coalition that says whether you're a municipality that needs to make zoning changes in order to incentivize densification or whether you're a provincial government that needs to get serious about accelerating your investments or whether you're the federal government that needs to think about um, how you can deploy strategically some some other tools that you have whether they're financing or land or whatnot we just we, we need to get the focus of commitment of everybody around the table on what they can do, right? And so getting out and and engaging people, building that coalition, getting a consensus on what needs to be done, that's really critical because it will then also help him and and his counterparts internally in each of their governments to be able to make the case to their ministers of finance and their premiers or prime ministers about what needs to be done. And and I just think, you know, there's a there's a sense of energy of what uh, Sean is able to bring to uh, the table because he's a great communicator, uh, to be honest. He's also a younger minister, and I think he's a little bit closer to understanding some of these issues. And the other thing that's interesting about Sean is he doesn't come from Toronto uh, or Vancouver or Montreal. And some people look at that and think, well, so what does he understand about housing? I would say he understands a lot about housing because of that, because what he will tell you is that in his parts of, of Atlantic Canada, um, if you don't have affordable housing, it means you're not able to attract the healthcare workers that you need in order to provide the community services that will make sure that rural parts of Nova Scotia don't see significant population decline, right? Because in, in other parts of our country, that's actually a huge problem as much as as the challenges that we face in, in, some, in some urban centers is about um, too fast population growth. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a recognition that regardless of where you are in this country, housing is integral to how we think about our, our social and economic success. Let's see, I, I, he quite often uh, talks about his roots in uh, New Brunswick, I believe, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think it's a welcome new perspective. All right, so we're, we're looking forward uh, in time. What does your Canada look like five years from now? What are your hopes? 
Look, my, my, the Canada that I care about, and the Canada that I want to continue to build is a Canada that, ha that sees continued progress in reducing poverty and improving inclusion and social inclusion and economic inclusion. And I think if you step back and you, um, you know, not that we should ignore um, the housing market, but I, I think sometimes we, we over, uh, overemphasize um, the, uh, the metaphor of the housing market as, as the only indicator of middle class success. It's important, but it's not the only thing that we need to, to think about as we think about social and economic progress. If we look at the broad indicators, right, whether it's poverty, whether it's inclusion, whether it's economic participation, we've been heading in the right direction for a while. Um, we have seen poverty fall to, uh, you know, uh, to levels we've not seen in decades. Um, we've had great success on child poverty. We've had great success on seniors' poverty. Uh, we are seeing, uh, you know, ever ever high rates of labor force participation, particularly increasingly by underrepresented groups. And so, I think our challenge as a country is to be able to continue making progress on all of those things. And housing is integral to that because um, a lot of what Canada has done to pin its to pin its future economic prosperities um, uh, or its future economic competitiveness um, is is pinned on the ability to both attract and to develop and retain the talent that we have right and if we don't have an affordable housing market we're not going to be able to keep people here we're not going to be able to um, make sure that they're in they're living in places in the country in which we need them uh, to be working for for our, our our businesses and our communities to be as successful as they need to be so I, I I mean the Canada that I'm thinking about over the next five years is a Canada that continues to show progress on um, on being able to reduce poverty and improve inclusion. Amazing. And that sounds like uh, a Canada I would love to be a part of. Listen, I want to say a huge thank you on behalf of all Canadians. You have been a part of some major uh, developments uh, in your seven and a half years of government. You, you know, you've just some big things. And, and all that to say, my question is, what are you most proud of, of your time? spending government because there's a lot to be proud of. I think there's some major strides made. What are you most proud of? Two or three things that actually come to mind. Um, so obviously, you know, the Canada Child Benefit, people can can cite that. Um, I, I, I obviously it's up there for me. Um, I, I was more involved in implementing it than 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 conceiving of it. So so I, I don't have as much direct attachment maybe to that as other things. But the thing that sticks out in my mind is um, number one, the Canada pension plan changes that were made in 2016. And the reason I say that is because it was super interesting for me, having been on the outside of government for the five years before that in the, in the think tank world. And a lot of what, we, what I was doing at that time was thinking about what is the future of our retirement income system? How are we going to make sure that, that when uh, people retire or those who are retiring at that time, that they don't fall into poverty, right? Back to my to to the example I, I mentioned of my my aunt Ruth, um, who so depended on on GIS and OAS being there, and how and we were seeing lots of evidence that that retirement income system was starting to fray. Um, that's that seniors uh, later in life were falling more into poverty, um, and I'm sure even you would you know would note that anecdotally we also have seen increasing usage of banks and shelter systems by older populations, which usually is a first sign that seniors' poverty is increasing. And so in 2016, the Prime Minister had made a commitment to enhance the Canada Pension Plan. 
didn't say how it would happen, um, didn't didn't have a particular design in mind. But we had to to get people and get the premiers interested in doing that around the table to commit to it because the CPP is something that is owned by all the provinces and territories. And within six months of coming to power, after in my case having spent five years on the outside working on this idea, within six months we had the condition to be able to enhance the Canada Pension Plan by fifty percent, and that's something that will pay off for 60 or 70 years in the future, because it means that when people retire, they will have more money in their pocket. They will be less likely to fall into a situation of uh, reduction in their consumption possibilities and less likely to fall into poverty. And if we do that, um, it will maintain the success of a lot of our social security systems in the future. And I just, I look at that as like, that's, there's very few things that you can do that will pay off 60, 70 years down the line. And to have been part of that was huge. The only other thing I would say, in addition to the national housing strategy, obviously that's up there too, is COVID. Uh, having been inside government and, and helped to design some of those emergency response benefits, um, it's not something you plan for, but um, you know, to have been part of that crisis response is something I'll never forget. Yeah, I, I would, I would just, I could just imagine. And and you know, it's funny when you say that. Um, a lot of people have said, CERB, for instance, was kind of a a basic income pilot for the whole country and shows what happened. And when you talk about food bank usage, I know that food bank usage was at its lowest uh, during that time. And unfortunately now it's climbed to all time highs. Our good friend of the podcast and head of daily bread, Neil Etheridge will always say, Hey, it's not a food issue. It's an income issue. Um, so yeah, lots to be proud of Tyler. Thank you so much for your time. If people want to, you're doing a lot of work still, we mentioned um, the Maitri uh, piece with Alan Broadman. If people want to check out the work you're doing now, are interested in finding out more, where can they go? Where can they find well, out more? The place to go is uh, mbpolicy, mbpolicy.com. Um, that's where I spend my days um, doing uh, consulting work. But I also teach at the University of Toronto's Monk School. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's been an interesting combination between Maitri and Monk and some of my consulting work to continue to work on, uh, on neat policy ideas. Fantastic. Well, listen, it's, it's often when I talk with people that are out of governments, they consider themselves survivors of, of government. You've come out of this well and it made some major contributions and we are grateful for it as we are grateful for your time. Thanks so much for spending some time on the show today and we'll hope to see you again on the way home. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.